You're listening to a podcast from the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference. The 8th Annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference took place at Queen's University Belfast in August 2018. The conference was generously supported by the School of History, Anthropology, Philosophy and Politics, the School of Arts, English and Languages and the Institute of Irish Studies, all at Queen's University Belfast and by Marsh's Library. As in previous years, the majority of papers were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media in association with HistoryHope.ie. There are now more than 200 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences freely available. To access this archive, go to HistoryHope.ie forward slash podcasts or visit TudorStuartIreland.com. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Dr. James O'Neill entitled The Women of Tyrone's Rebellion, 1593-1603, to A New Narrative. And the Nine Years' War in Ireland, also known as Tyrone's Rebellion, uh, visited death, devastation and misery to every province in the country and brought the English regime in Ireland teetering to the point of collapse. However, after ten years of war, I know what goes up, but they call it the Nine Years' War. I'm not going to change the brand. Let's just call it the Nine Years' War. It's ten years. Uh, the Earl of Tyrone and his Irish allies were defeated and the Tudor conquest of Ireland uh, finished. The final vestiges of native Irish power and social order were swept away. But oddly, there was relatively little written on what was a pivotal moment in Irish history. Only in the last decade have scholars turned their attention to the conflict, and even then, many still refer to narratives written almost 70 years ago. Consider then the women of the war. Until very recently, the history of women in early modern armies has received scant uh, consideration. Therefore, for an obscure conflict on the edge of Europe, the history of women in Ireland during Tyrone's war against the English crown is all but non-existent. The figure of Queen Elizabeth I may have been at the apex of the English state. However, the state papers and the Irish annals relating to the war give little attention to the role of women during the conflict. War was clearly the prerogative of men, or so the current history would suggest. But close scrutiny reveals enough to show that women were not passive observers of the conflict, but were a vital element both in the English and Irish campaigns. This presentation will explore the presence of women on campaign and what part they played in what could be a decidedly harsh existence. Now, in contemporary Europe, uh, women were common, indeed indispensable feature of life in campaign. Recruitment of soldiers was invariably associated with an influx of civilians, notably women, children and service providers, such as sutlers, who could also be women, who sold goods to troops while in the field. The numbers following an army could vary in size, but in many cases they could equal or indeed greatly outnumber the troops in the field. Women performed many domestic tasks commonly associated with civilian life, such as washing, cooking and cleaning. But also prostitution in various guises serviced the sexual desires of troops and medical needs were often met by nurses attached to an army or established in areas of operations. Unsurprisingly, Ireland was no different. Armies operating in Ireland had the same needs as any other contemporary force. Therefore, supporting entourages of civilians were present. However, identifying the exact numbers of accompanying troops, the exact numbers accompanying troops into the field is problematic, as those writing the reports were not officially responsible for their maintenance, nor was it an issue if they were killed or died while in campaign. Even so, many women and children followed English troops into the field from the very opening stages of the war. In one of the very earliest campaigns, Captain Humphrey Willis, who is an absolute charmer, uh, but we'll not go into him, as foray into Fermanagh during the spring of 1593 with a single company of foot, roughly 100 men, 
was accompanied by over 160 women and boys, all living off the spoil of the country. And while the authorities in Dublin did not concern themselves with the fate of the camp followers, the masses of humanity which followed the armies needed fed nonetheless. Consequently, the Crown was upset by reports of disorder and theft caused by Crown troops passing through loyal territories. They didn't actually mind if they wrecked disloyal areas, but different matter from the loyal areas. Uh, the cost of maintaining women and children in the camp was borne by the soldiers who brought them. And despite express orders from Dublin to the contrary, troops extorted money and supplies from the rural population. And while this practice raised much discontent and complaints from territories affected uh, by the association of uh, large numbers of civilians uh, with the armies, and they caused a major problem for effective military operations. Though vital for the day-to-day maintenance of the camp, civilians could have a drastic effect on the tactical and operational effectiveness of the armies. They slowed the pace of the movement and limited the mobility of English units. Within the restrictive Irish landscape and against an elusive and fast-paced Irish enemy, this was a huge handicap. Now, Lord Deputy Russell attempted to limit these numbers to but six women for laundresses, such as shall be married to the wives of some of the said soldiers, Russell, beyond this, Russell threatened to execute any civilians found over and above the permitted numbers under martial law. These were exceptional provisions, and it's unclear exactly how Russell ever thought they could be enforced, as the rule of law required these self-same troops to enforce it. Moreover, the Lord General of the Army, Sir John Norris, refused to countersign the orders, and ultimately Russell's orders had little effect. Though there are written reports, it would be going too far to say many reports, Referring to women in the English military camps, there is only one illustration showing women in an English, or Irish for that matter, encampment during the war. This is an illustration showing the siege of Glynn Castle, County Limerick, in July 1600. And at the very bottom of the drawing is a camp occupied by an assortment of soldiers, typical of English armies, but three women are also shown. One walks through the central avenue of the camp, accompanied by what could be an officer, whereas another two women walk together unaccompanied. They seem to be at their leisure. Moreover, their dress suggests that they were women of some status. Their full-length dresses were adorned with a highly fashionable whisk-standing collars. And siege camps were regularly noted for their squalor and disease, but evidently, even women of some means were willing to be accompanied by troops through such places. Wives and camp followers were not the sole provenance of English units. Women joined Tyrone's men in campaign. However, early Irish operations relied on speed, which would not have been concomitant with civilians or baggage to slow their pace. However, during the latter stages of the war, Tyrone's Confederate forces were forced to bring supply trains, and at the same time, reports appear noting the presence of women in the Irish camps. Captured by the Crown appeared to be little impediment to the Irish women who wished to be with their husbands, and after the Confederate garrison at Listowel Castle, County Kerry, surrendered in December 1600, their wives were released. However, the women did not leave, but returned to the English camp to be with their husbands. There they lodged uh, with them all night in the Marshalsea, a prison, and stayed until the next day and left uh, by noon. Civilians attending the army were generally drawn from the lower social classes, but there were cases where women of high social standing travelled with the army. Catherine McGuinness, Tyrone's fourth wife, was with him in camp in Arma, uh, south of Armagh in 1597. And the night-time Camisado forced Catherine and her husband to flee into the woods, but the experience did not deter her two years, as two years later, Catherine was with Tyrone in his camp near Newry. Moreover, at the time, uh, McGuinness was four months pregnant, and at the end of October she gave birth to his son, Sean. And when Tyrone was near Navan County Meath at the end of 1589, Sir William Warren reported that Tyrone had his wife, less than a month after giving birth, and daughters in the camp with him. 
with some pessimism, warrant also add that, for the most part, all their wives are with them, which maketh me think that they regard our army but a little. While women were unquestionably caught up in the horrors of war and were often present during engagements, there is little to suggest that they actively took part in combat. Women were recorded as holding fortified positions, though, such as Hugh McGuinness's wife, uh, who held Narrowater Castle, and Catherine Butler, who held two wards in 1601, though it was perhaps unsurprising to find that she was paid the lowest rate of any constable on the crown list. Women also uh, participated in deception plans in 1602. Uh, deter attack, to deter attacks by superior crown forces in Fermanagh, uh, O'Sullivan Burr armed them uh, with spears to make the camp appear stronger than it was. However, leave it to Fines Morrison to provide the most gruesome and lurid description of violence by women. In his account of the famine in Ulster in 1602-03, he referred to old women preying on children when he recounted how some old women of those parts used to make fire in the fields and diverse little children driving out their cattle in the cold mornings and coming thither to warm them, where there they surprised them and killed them and they were eaten. Uh, one girl managed to escape and raise the alarm, bringing soldiers who promptly put the women to the sword. Now, this event has frequently been cited as evidence of the deplorable state of Ulster by 1602-03, but the incident was too fantastic to be true. Why did the women not seize the cattle for food instead of the children? Furthermore, the icon of the cannibalistic crone is a stock feature in folkloric tales in early modern Europe, and Morrison may have added this to his narrative as a dramatic flourish to what was a decidedly monotonous but brutal phase of the war. Furthermore, he may have created the story as a metaphor for the barbarism of the Irish, something that Morrison rarely missed a chance to emphasise. Now, it would be foolish to assume that women were not paying attention to the actions and speeches of men about them, even if they were not directly involved or played an active part in those events. Consequently, when women fell into government's hands or fled to them for protection, they often had vital and hugely enlightening pieces of intelligence, even if the importance of the information could only be gauged with hindsight. There were detailed reports which, if acted on at the time, may have greatly changed the entire course of the conflict. The earliest of these was Joan Kelly. She was an eyewitness to the events during and after the Battle of the Four of the Biscuits in August 1594, where she noted how Tyrone's complicity in the attack on the English army and his meetings with Maguire. Kelly gave details of Tyrone's plans to go to the Lord Deputy Russell, his receipt of equipment and horses captured during the battle, Tyrone's orders for spoiling of Breffany and the Pale. In addition, she gave the names of many of seniors and junior, senior and junior officers in Tyrone's camp. And despite the damning testimony that took Tyrone's capture of the Blackwater Fort in February 1595, for the Crown to find, he conceded that the Earl was complicit in the war. It's definitely war for slow learners. Now, some women were more business-minded with their intelligence. Anne Wilmar was the handmaid of Mabel Bagnall, Tyrone's third wife. After Mabel's death, Wilmar made to return to England, but she first arrived at Kilmac Thomas Castle, County Waterford. Living at the heart of Tyrone's lordship, she would have been privy to a wealth of information. And Wilmar suggested that the Queen would be willing to pay £10,000 for her knowledge of Tyrone's movements in the Pale and who he was meeting. Now, there was no suggestion that Wilmar received the sum, or if this was idle speculation to extract cash from the Crown. But it was obvious that she knew that in war, crucial information could demand, or in her case, suggest, exorbitant sums. Other women actively put themselves, or were put in danger, to gather intelligence. In his efforts to track down James Fitzthomas, the Sugian Earl of Desmond, the Archbishop of Cashel controlled 17 spies, which he described as men, women, dispersed through all monster in disguised manners, some like fools, others lame, counterfeit blind jesters. And afterwards, only and after only O'Moore captured the Earl of Ormond in April 1600, Sir Geoffrey Fenton managed to have a gentlewoman, given the intriguing codename Imperia Romana, 
placed in the same lodgings as the imprisoned Earl. And from there she passed details of Ormond's captivity and brought messages to and from the Earl from Fenton and Mountjoy. Of course, after he was released, he never mentioned her again. Tyrone was credited with having excellent intelligence on his English adversaries. And at the start of 1595, Lord Deputy Russell noted that Tyrone knew about the order to send fresh troops out of England before he did, and that he, Tyrone, could hear anything out of England sooner than the deputy. And according to the polemical discourse in the Mirror Irish of Ireland, the author remarked how women played a key part in uh, gathering intelligence, noting that in times of hostility, these women do serve for espials to give all possible intelligence to the enemy of any project intended against them. Consequently, it was highly likely that women were an integral part of Tyrone's intelligence network. And during the wars in the mid-17th century, Irish women were often acted as messengers and diplomatic go-betweens, taking advantage of familial and social ties that transmit communications and mediate between men on both sides of the conflict. This was also seen during the Nine Years' War, but while some were elite noblewomen, there were also many references to nameless women carrying dispatches. Indeed, the anonymous letter of discourses on the mere Irish of Ireland suggested that women formed the core of the communications network, which carried news and letters throughout the island. While railing against this roughish kind of people, some are stout beggars, some are professed whores and other common women, the discourse referred to women as itinerant messages and letter carriers. In times of trouble, women be the instrument that do whisper them at all times from one to another of all the Irish faction. These be the conduits that carry and convey these evils from place to place. These do divulge and scatter their reprobate opinion in every corner of that kingdom, and these do join these firebrands together. The author goes further, claiming that the women also acted as spies and saboteurs and likely to burn down houses or villages, which, through compassion or charity, gave them shelter. Though this may simply be an attack on Irish women, a common occurrence, uh, it is clear that women carried letters and messages for both Irish and English throughout the war. Moreover, they may have been able to do so in greater safety than men, performing the same role. And when Essex attempted to agitate defections in Ulster in 1589, he was careful to send a woman because a man should be suspected. In Munster, Florence McCarthy noted that letters sent by Carouge during the summer of 1600 would have cost the messenger his life if he had been taken by the Irish along the way. And McCarthy replies to Carew and the Earl of Thomond were hid or stitched in women's apparel. Often women adopted roles that were far more active than basic functionaries for delivering letters or messages. They were often used both by the Crown and Irish Confederates as envoys or representatives. And the wives of senior leaders could attend meetings in their husband's stead and during discussions with Sir John Norris in 1597, Tyrone specifically requested that Faye McHugh O'Burns send his wife, Rose O'Toole, to represent his interests. Possibly to avoid questions over their loyalty, wives could be used as proxies, and fear that direct contact with enemies may suggest complicity, and maybe behind Lord Delvin's request for the Irish Council to grant his wife a commission to parley with the Irish rebels. And throughout Europe, women wielded indirect political power by influencing their husbands or male relatives to whom official authority was vested. The same was true in Ireland, but in the context of the divisions between Native Irish, Old English and New English. Many, of the Eng- many in the English establishment had bewailed the impact of intermarriage on English culture in Ireland long before the outbreak of the war in 1593. There were efforts to ban intermarriage between Irish and English families in 1538, though with little success. And though there were frequent accusations by the new English arrivals in Ireland that Catholic Old English had degenerated due to social contact and intermarriage with the native Irish. In his report to the English Privy Council, Lord Chancellor Gerard called for a prohibition of intermarriage as it was a key feature of English of the English degenerates. Nevertheless, by 1593, it was still a matter of grave concern for the Crown. 
Edmund Spencer summarized the issues by cataloging the dangers of Irish wives, and he leveled a litany of dangers and cited examples such as the Birminghams, who through licentiousness, conversion with the Irish, or marrying, or fostering, we are now waxing the most savage Irish. He called the fostering and marriage the two most dangerous infections. And English children brought up by nurses or mothers with, will always be inclined to favour Irish speech and manners. And the anonymous author of the dialogue, Sylvian Peregrine, pens similar concerns, and in the supplication of the blood of the English, most lamentably murdered in Ireland, written in 1598, possibly again by Spencer, added that Irish wives could draw their husbands to ignore their duty, uh, protect Irish relatives in revolt, and even coerce their spouses to defect or surrender their wards or castles into Irish hands. And Irish wives uh, changed the English name into Irish nature. The loss of Asai in November 1598 might have confirmed these fears that the loyalty of garrisons could be compromised by intermarriage. The constable and 14 of his warders, all of whom were English or Anglo-Irish, defected to the Irish. And Sir Richard Birmingham suggested it was because the constable was married into the O'Moors and he was drawn to be a villain. Despite the claims that Irish wives had a harmful, if not malevolent, influence on English officers, the taking of the Blackwater Fort by Art McBarn O'Neill in February 1595 demonstrated that Irish wives could occupy a role as mediator between the Crown forces and the Irish Confederates. When the Irish directed an envoy to negotiate the surrender of the fort, the commander of the fort sent out one of his warders' wives, who was a friend of Art McBarn, uh, to know further his mind. We thinking that she could persuade him to consent to our demands between fortress. She also carried messages between the isolated defenders of the fort. There were references to Irish wives drawing away formerly loyal lords. Ormond claimed that it was the Baron of Kerr's linked to the Viscount Mountgarrett that caused him to rebel against the crown. Mountgarrett was allied to Tyrone, and Ormond claimed that Kerr was a simple and foolish carried away by his wife that was Mountgarrett's sister. Wives also exerted a strong influence on Irish confederates and in many instances forced or convinced their husbands to defect of the crown. Certainly the wishes of a lord's spouse could be a decisive factor. In Connacht, John Burke joined Tyrone, but was persuaded to return his allegiance to the crown on the intercession of his wife and his mother. And furthermore, it was alleged that Florence McCarthy's wife, Ellen, refused to share his bed until he was reconciled with the English. The power of wives' influence the husbands was not lost on English officers in Ireland, and a key feature of Mountjoy's efforts to defeat Tyrone's confederation was a more determined effort to cause defections in the Irish ranks. The best documented success was the plot to entice Dermot O'Connor's defection. He was one of Tyrone's principal captains in Munster, but O'Connor's wife, Margaret, was the sister of James Fitzgerald, a claimant for the vacant earldom of Desmond, held prisoner of the Tower of London. If Margaret could cause her husband to betray James Fitzthomas, the Sugan Earl, Carew offered to have her brother reinstated as the Earl of Desmond. Carew was unambiguous when he wrote the chiefest motive that draws him, O'Connor, that is, to the Queen, is the persuasion of his wife, who works him to no other end than to enlarge her brother. Although the £1,000 he offered might have also helped. Ultimately, the plotters bungled the complex plan, and the fiasco resulted in O'Connor's death, but Carew made sure to look after Margaret, and she was later granted a £100 per annum pension. To quickly sum up, the conflict convulsed almost every part of Ireland and caused untold misery as whole provinces were led waste. Inevitably, the impact of the war fell on both men and women, regardless of the decidedly male-biased narrative of the contemporary papers. Notwithstanding the relative lack of representation in the manuscripts and contemporary publications, women were intrinsic to the operations of both English and Irish armies during the war. And wherever troops were found, women were almost always found with them, providing support by replicating domestic roles of civilian life, attending the sick and wounded, addressing sexual appetites of the troops, and just about any of, just as in any other military camp found in Europe. 
However, women also provided the intelligence and were employed as spies, messages conveying information between allies and enemies alike. As envoys, women could, women could maintain communications where men could not due to the inherent dangers for fear of attracting accusations of disloyalty. The power of women to influence their husbands, either for or against the crown, was well recognised and indeed profoundly influenced the course of the war. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to this Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. If you would like to access the archive of more than 200 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences, please go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts. All podcasts are freely available on iTunes and on SoundCloud. For more information on the annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference, visit the conference website at tudorstuartireland.com.